G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you may miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. And just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do it in the studio. But nonetheless, we are here and we've been practicing. And with all that being said, I would like to introduce you today to Diane Whitelaw, who is doing a PhD in history under the supervision of Dr. Mark Eprick. Welcome to Grad Chat, Diane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm going to get straight into it. Your research topic is is in relation to the Zambian political history. So what made you want to study the history of Zambian politics? It's not something that usually comes to mind, particularly from students living in Canada. Very true. Well, originally, my interest was in African studies more broadly. I actually spent most of my childhood in East Africa. And so when it came to deciding what to study in university, I ended up minoring in African studies at York. But the focus on Zambia comes from an acquaintance, um, actually a friend of the family whose father is the politician whose career I study. So we had met our friend Thomas and found out that his dad had been the vice president of Zambia in this very understudied area of Zambian political history. So the project kind of just fell in my lap. Wow, talking about six degrees of separation for things like that. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And what a great way because you, you got an in, haven't you, straight away, mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes things yeah. a little easier for you. So I, I guess, can you give us, without going into too much detail straight off, just a little bit of an overview today, just a short one, before we get into the more nitty gritty questions so we can expand on that a little bit more. Sure. Um, take it away. Okay, so the specific politician who I study, Mainz Achona, he was instrumental in the anti-colonial movement in the 1950s and 60s, and then served in political office for the rest of his career in the post-colonial Zambian government. So the project that I'm doing for my PhD is looking at what is known as the Chona Commission. So it's a constitutional review commission that he chaired as vice president that made a a very significant change in the political dynamics at the time. And what year was that, that um, this political time when Thias Chona was there looking at? 1972 is when this constitutional commission happens. So Zambia got its independence in 1964. And so that was kind of the early kind of adolescent years of Zambian independent government. And this is quite significant that you're talking about, because, again, this is another post-colonial time that you're looking at, where often with anything post-colonial, there's, there's, there's a lot of changes in, in government. Yes, absolutely. And is that what Zambia, drew you to it? Uh, yeah, I think because of the significant change that it made um, in, like, governance structures, but also the culture of Zambian identity and and kind of this maturation into what it would mean for Zambia to be an independent nation. This era is is kind of groundbreaking in terms of molding the Zambian political structure 
but also it's indicative of what's happening on the continent more broadly with this movement to single party states. Right. And so, yeah, you're right there because that's happened a lot in the African nations, hasn't it? Post-colonial. Yeah, um, there was absolutely a trend. Not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, there was definitely a trend towards single party states and um, Zambia was not the first. But um, yeah, they definitely became kind of problematic iterations of kind of a, a charade or a facade of democracy. So before I go a little bit further, you, you, you slightly touched on Matthias Chona, mm-hmm. but can you give me more background on him as to how we got to where he was before this commission was set up? Yeah, absolutely. I find him to be a fascinating character. He, uh, he was the son of a chief in southern province of Zambia, and they are of the Tonga ethnicity. So when we think about, you know, African cultures, as we don't call them tribes anymore, you know, but in terms of his ethnicity, he comes right. from the, a Tonga background, which is a large population, but kind of unrespected group within the nation. They're not considered the most sophisticated bunch. And so the fact that he came from a place of privilege, his father being a chief, meant that he had access to higher education. He was he, he did secondary school at the local Catholic okay. mission school, and then he ended up going to law school in the UK. So I think his relative privilege afforded him some opportunities. And then having been educated abroad and having access to, you know, he was able to meet a lot of other influential Zambian anti-colonial leaders, including Kenneth Kaunda, who became president at Independence. And there was a larger Pan-Africanist movement going on at the time where civil rights is happening in the United States in the 60s. And then these African leaders were really bonding together to work for independence for their nation. So he kind of got caught up in that crowd and was able to be an, an influential anti-colonial leader in colonial, what was Northern Rhodesia, became Zambia, and then, you know, was elected to office right. once indep- independence happened. Yeah. So with that, because, I mean, yes, there was a lot of changes, of course, and, you know, people sort of trying to find their feet once they got independence, of course. So how was the concept of national unity and a national identity born out through the implications of something like the Chona Commission? Or, or should I be going one step back? What is the Ch- Chona Commission all about? Sure. Yeah. The Chona Commission was formally called the National Commission on the Establishment of a Single Party State. So Kaunda, President Kaunda had at the time decided that they should become a single party state, which really was a way for him to shore up power and not have any opposition, right? It, it made opposition parties right. illegal. So that was kind of, they've decided they're going to go with a one party state, but the commission was to find out from participatory democratic process to find out from citizens how they wanted that government to function. So what did they want that to look like? And some significant changes that came out of it were they abolished the office of the vice president and became a prime minister. So Chona was actually in that role and and made that change. But it it changed up the kind of parliamentary system that they had inherited from the British government that had formerly ruled. So it addressed a lot of issues and took written and oral submissions. They held hearings across the country. They visited every county in the country, this commission, to ask what people wanted from their democracy in the form of a single party state. And then they came up with the report that was the Chona Commission report, which I look at, which kind of gets 
name dropped here and there in the history books, but nobody's really done a complete study of, of the Chona Commission and how it functioned and, and what it contributed. So that's my role. It's interesting that they did all that work to find out whether the citizens would want, say, a one uh, one party state. But with that, those all those sort of focus groups, so to speak, did they give them the option of what happens if they wanted a two or a three party <laughs> state, or was it just this is what we're looking at, so it's going to be this or no? It wasn't within the purview of the Constitutional Commission. Oh, is that right? So it's either this is the way we're going to go. Tell us what you think. Yeah, and that's why I say it was kind of a charade of democracy, right? So that's actually fascinating that, I mean, they looked like they were, you know, trying to give the people a voice, but they weren't really, so, <laughs> right. which is which is an interesting concept. So, but what were they trying to do? I mean, how is the concept of national unity and a national identity born out through the implications of this Chona Commission? Was it bringing unity? I think the question of whether or not it was successful is maybe <laughs> someone else's Probably a better. field of mm-hmm. research, but I think it, it absolutely made attempts. So one aspect of national unity that I think is, is important is Kaunda's attempts at tribal balancing. And that's what he would have called it. I think, you know, ethnic balancing is maybe a more appropriate term. But he could see that in other countries, such as Kenya, for example, a lot of people were voting along tribal lines, ethnic lines, right? So picking the representative that belonged to their group. And so that became very polarizing and there was a lot of violence, Kenya being a prime example of that. And I think he wanted to curtail that and help Zambia move forward as a united nation that's made up of 70 plus different language and ethnic groups. And that was one of the reasons for the single party state was to to say there's there's no opposition, right? So you're not just going to vote for the guy who comes from your, your group, your family. But through measures of tribal balancing, which uh, included making sure that government and cabinet was made up of people from across the country, right? They weren't all just from a single ethnic group, that there was diversity and inclusion among the political representatives. But then also things like his slogan, One Zambia, One Nation, was heavily promulgated through kind of the propaganda machine of the single party state, but trying to reinforce this notion that we're one people, that we need to have national unity because of the turmoil that was going on kind of around Zambia within the region. Um, and everything politically happening at that time, it was really important that Zambia have this kind of cohesive national unity and not be infighting within the country. It's interesting because in one way you think, well, that's a really nice thought process Mm -hmm. of we're all one. Mm -hmm. We have differences, but we are all one. So in one way, it seems really nice. But I guess the other side of that, it's almost like a dictatorship. It's like it's me or nothing. And you're either with me or you're not. Right. That's exactly how it turned out to be. Oh, right. (laughs) Okay. Not so good. Yeah. Which is, and it's like you said, it's the the propaganda of how it was framed. Do you think, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you can answer this, do you think the the people of Zambia realised what was happening when they were being asked these questions? in the first place as part of the China Commission? Yeah, I do. Because I think what my research is showing is that people tried to present opposition to the idea of a single party state at the hearings. And the the commissioners had to remind them, that's not what we're asking you. That's not the question here, right? That's a foregone conclusion. 
Of course, they have diverse opinions, right? So, I mean, some mm -hmm. people were very much on board with the single party idea and with Kaunda's presidency, which he was in office for 27 years. He had supporters, but he also had enemies. He had detractors. He had people who opposed the single party state as a principle. They opposed the single party state with that party in particular. There's absolutely dissent happening and, and a debate happening, but he was very effective in silencing that for a long time. Did he choose people? I mean, I'm assuming he has a he had a cabinet and things. So did mm -hmm. he handpick those or were they elected by the people or was it just handpicked? Yeah, cabinet was, was handpicked and it was kind of that inner circle of anti-colonial leaders for this first era. Um, obviously, things change later on. But at this point, it's very much still the anti-colonial leadership who are in office. And and the, the selection of the, these leaders that you that you ask about definitely is connected to that idea of tribal balancing. And I think there's been some speculation that Chona himself was only in this office because he belonged to the, the Tonga group. So it was a way of including this kind of less revered, less respected tribe in you know, a very prominent government position as vice president or prime minister. Whereas I argue that he very much was qualified and he it was a meritocratic choice to put Jonah in the, these positions. And, and obviously he was also elected into some of the, he held more ministerial positions than any other Zambian leader, I think, to this day. So is that because of his educational background? I mean, who the other people on the cabinet, mm -hmm. did they have a different sort of education to the general population? Like, with, did they have privilege? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There were others who were educated, much like Chona, who went to England to study law and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of this class or upper echelon of privileged, educated Africans. Yeah. Right, right. So what lasting constitutional ramifications has the Chona Commission had on later iterations of Zambian democracy? Because that was a huge change yeah. for starters. Uh, yes. Well, after the Chona Commission, basically in 73, they wiped out their independence constitution from 1964, which was just a very brief document basically saying Zambia is an independent nation and Kaunda is its president. Right. At that point, they actually wrote a more thorough and, and full constitution in, in 1973 based on the recommendations from the Chona Commission. And then after Kaunda was ousted from office in 1991, Zambia revisited its constitution and made a new one saying we're going to be a multi-party state again. So it returned to multi-partyism after the Kaunda era. But every right. time Zambia has reevaluated its constitution and made amendments, it's come back to the Chona Commission as the informative report that is what does Zambia want from its democracy, right? Even though it's a 45-year-old document now and could arguably be redone to you know update it, it's just that every single time Zambia has kind of not just a constitutional crisis, but a question, it comes back to the recommendations of the Chona Commission. And a prime example of that is that there was no clear mechanism in the constitution for what happens if a president dies in office. So in the United States, we know that if the president dies in office, the vice president steps up Takes and moving. finishes out the term, right? There was no clear policy on that in the constitution. And that actually happened. Zambia had a president die in office in 2011. Then they said, well, we don't actually know what to do in this circumstance. Um, <laughs> our constitution doesn't tell us. So they went back to the Chona Commission to decide 
okay, so he, the vice president finishes out the term and then he was elected for another term, but then is he eligible for his own complete second term or has his two terms run out? Run out. Oh, wow. It almost sounds so short-sighted when there's so many different democracies that you could look at to, to follow. Well, one thing I'm finding fascinating, they can change the constitution so easily. Well, I think it happens through... Uh, like amendments and bills and, and, you know, proper channels, like you have amendments in the constitution in the States. But what we're seeing is an adolescent nation, right? Where countries like the States have had their independence and have been working on this for, you know, 200 years, they're still just kind of getting on, on their feet in terms of figuring out, you know, all these different extenuating circumstances. How do we deal with this as a country and and what is our way forward? So, and I think I heard this correctly. So after Kunda finished, it Mm -hmm. went back to a two or three party system. It went away from the one party. Right. Yeah. So how did they manage to do that? Yeah, they pushed for a multi-party election. I think a lot of people were saying, okay, even though we agreed with this at the time in 72, it doesn't make sense anymore as a nation. Things have changed, you know, geopolitically with all the other countries in the region having their independence and that sort of thing. And so by 1991, there was a multi-party election, which Kaunda kind of just couldn't fight anymore. And he lost that election miserably. He really didn't think he would. But right. it kind of just came to the point where he had to concede and say, okay, I guess I'm really not what the people want anymore. And uh, the other party came into office and, and changed everything back to a multi-party system officially. It's, it's interesting because we, we're seeing what's going on in, in Myanmar at the moment, mm-hmm. of course, where the military, for instance, didn't like the result from, from what the people chose. Mm-hmm. And instead of just letting it happen, they've they've staged a coup so it was interesting that he in Zambia Kunda realized it's not what they want anymore so I'm stepping back because it could easily have gone sideways couldn't it yeah and we've seen that happen in other African countries where Mm. uh, dictators just don't leave office right so as as problematic as things were in his regime to his credit he stepped down when the time came yeah. Right, right. And so have you, I mean, you've, you've mentioned this, this happened and this um, you know, the single party state is in other post-colonial African countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones are still, still being a single party state and, and how is that going? That's a tough one to answer. To my knowledge, I don't think any still officially are, but the literature definitely makes a, a distinction between de facto and de jure single party states. You might have a multi-party system on paper, but the way these these things function is very much still very autocratic in a lot of circumstances. Kenya being an example that was kind of a, a parallel to Zambia at this point. Yeah. Right, right. So back in Zambia, though, like today, mm-hmm. you, you said, no, things can change. Does it look like the, the people of Zambia feel their their voices are being heard? which with with whatever government is in place <laughs> it's hard it to a tricky to a contemporary one? moment yeah right there is definitely official opposition and the official opposition leader is very vocal and very um controversial i think you know he has strong support and he has strong opposition there it's it's a a polarized system for sure i do know that some people have lost their jobs just for being accused of being a supporter of the opposition party. So even though it's very much legal 
to have an opposition party and it is a, a two-party state or system, on a personal level, it's very polarizing and there have been consequences for people, even just by being Tonga, which the opposition leader is at this point, belonging to the Tonga ethnicity or vocalizing any kind of support for the opposition leader. Um, there have been consequences in people's lives. So okay, that's not good. So with mm -hmm. these other ethnic groups in Zambia, are there some groups that have a bigger voice than others? And Because, I mean, that's one yeah. of the hard things with a country that has so many different ethnicities of everyone having their chance to be heard and be treated equally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What comes to mind is the Bemba group who come from the northern part of the country. They kind of are considered more more sophisticated, more educated, maybe more urban, whereas the Tonka people are, are more pastoral farming, you know, kind of what we can think of as country people as opposed to city people, that kind of thing. But the Bemba group definitely um, is more prominent in terms of its its presence and its voice. And a lot of the leadership, especially historically at the era I look at, uh, was from the Bemba group. And so that was the concern largely with including voices like Chona's was to balance out the fact that government is very highly representative of that, not just people group, but that region of the country and their interests, right? Because when you think right. about where these ethnic groups are located, uh, you can kind of think about what kind of resources are available, natural resources and that type of thing, which determines the economics of a region and therefore a people group. So I'm going to come back to your original thought process of, of the research that you want to mm. do. And you've got written in your little notes here to me, you know, you're interested in, in how, you know, the single party state and post-colonial Zambia, how it engaged with issues of national and the Chona Commission, sorry, how it engaged with issues of national unity, citizenship, humanism and geopolitical circumstances in a time mm -hmm where the region of Southern Africa was fraught with racist and colonial tensions. With your work that you've done, do you feel you've uncovered some of those thoughts that you had in your original, original idea? Yeah, I mean, when you read the report of the Chona Commission itself, I think every single recommendation falls into one of those categories that you mentioned, either, you know, topics of national unity or the idea of humanism or the geopolitical circumstance, right? Like this is kind of how I've divided up my chapters as, as themes right. to see how the, the commission report engages with each of those themes through all the recommendations that it's making. Yeah. Right. So have you found as the years have gone by some of your, you know, the ideals within the national unity and geopolitical circumstances, mm -hmm. have you found as things are going on, it's perhaps diluted or totally changed how the country is feeling? Well, for starters, in terms of the geopolitical kind of international relations situation, of course, because things externally have changed, right? The Cold War ended, apartheid fell, all these um, different things that are kind of affecting the region and the continent, Zambia's response then is different or its priorities are different in terms of right. how it's relating to its neighbors. The era that I look at, you know, Zambia was um, supporting Zimbabwe's anti-colonial struggle, which didn't end until 1980, right? So the way that it's engaging with its neighbors, for sure, its priorities are changing. I think the concept of national unity is still something that Zambia struggles with. You still see the one Zambia, one nation slogan throughout the capital city and that kind of thing um, right. on overpasses on highway and that kind of thing. Right. I think it's something that that's still a message that they're trying to promote and, and trying to work through. And 
people still know each other's ethnic backgrounds. It, you know, it comes across in, in surnames and which languages you speak and that kind of thing. But tensions, I find, what I, what I found in my research there was tensions along tribal lines really don't come out until election time. When the question okay. is, who are you voting for? So you can oh. see that the, the tribal lines still exist within political affinities. And as for the idea of humanism, which is, is, a, is a big topic, and it's, it's something I could expand on. It's the chapter I'm writing right now. It was something that the Kaunda had tried to implement and, and really promulgate through his messaging. And I make an argument about the, the propaganda of the state. But what, what's interesting to me is as much as he tried to inculcate that into Zambian culture, Five years after he's voted out in 91, so when 96, you see Zambia make this official transition to being a Christian nation, using quotes. So that's also a trend within Africa. But it, to me, it speaks to the fact that maybe his Zambian humanism rhetoric didn't really take root as much as he had hoped. Because right. just a few years after he's ousted, Zambia makes this big official change in its kind of religious identity. That's um, incredible, really, isn't it? I mean, in such a short period of time, it got yeah. changed. Yeah, yeah. That really is incredible. It mm -hmm. sounds like you've got some really concrete chapters that you can put in, in your research, which must be yeah. nice to have, though you can, you can sort of see it so, well, maybe it's not so easy, but it looks so easy in terms of, you know, you've got these main items that you can put in a box and you can talk about that both what's going on at the time and maybe looking at what's happening now. So that must be nice for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I've kind of constructed my chapters along these themes and sometimes it seems really clear cut and easy. And then I go, wait, this isn't supposed to be easy. Am I doing this right? Because <laughs> <laughs> Don't second guess yourself. <laughs> well, it feels that way sometimes because it's just like, wait, if this takes people seven years to complete, it shouldn't feel this simple. Why? Maybe, maybe I'm underthinking this. Maybe I'm, you know, missing something. I think we I all have that it. imposter syndrome sometimes. You, you do have you. You do all have that imposter syndrome, and you should, you know, trust what you're looking at and what you're putting down there. It, mm. it just goes to show you've probably done. Um, some really good background research and things so and it's nice if it can come so clearly in I your head because so. that's where a lot of people sort of struggle of putting it together but uh no it sounds like you're well on the way right. to putting together some great research and mm. I, I wonder if your friends would be interested in reading it when you're finished with your ha. connections <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Zambian politics are pretty niche <laughs> <laughs> well there you go it's good to have a niche a niche market <laughs> a niche project so. that's true no, well yeah. I there's not a lot of competition for library books <laughs> you never know because I mean what you've what you've sort of talked about though I mean here was a very distinct commission that was put together and and mm -hmm. it worked for us a, a certain amount of time but then it but then of course it got changed so it's actually quite a fascinating research on one particular country in a bigger continent, which is in a, in a continent yeah. that's had a lot of change from one country to the next because of Absolutely. decolonization. So it's actually, mm -hmm. it's interesting to see, you know, this is what happened in Zambia, post-colonialism and you know, this is what happened in Kenya and, uh, you know, South Africa and all those sorts of places. So I think that's mm -hmm. great. So, yeah, knock that yeah. imposter Thank syndrome you. off. <laughs> <laughs> so, Diane, we're going to have to um, call it quits there because 
I thought, you know, as I always say this, time runs away from us. So uh, I do appreciate you talking about it. And I know I chucked a few curly ones in there because sometimes my head just goes ahead of me sometimes and I have to sort of reframe it. So I apologize for that. <laughs> That's all right. Coming left field, so to speak. But I do really appreciate you coming on the show and best of luck for finishing it up as well. Sounds like it's going to be a beauty. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grand Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in Grand Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.